Thank you, Father, for speaking that word of hope and promise to Sophia. Rest and peace from the One who declares, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because of that truth, we are here. And may the teaching we are about to hear confirm to us that you are the God. You are the God. We can trust to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks to my two friends, Kathy Kudell and Holly Schaefer. I'm about to introduce to you two very new goat friends of mine. But before they come out and join me here in the pulpit, I want to take a moment with you and reflect on this two-goat ritual that was central to the Day of Atonement celebration. Before we, we reenact that, let's read the account in Leviticus. Take your Bible out, please. Leviticus chapter 16. This is the great Yom Kippur chapter. Leviticus 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, you need to see this. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. It will be page 80 in your pew Bible. Let's get the setting for this reenactment by reading the actual account given by God through Moses to the children of Israel. Something's in this for Israel. Something is in this for you and me. We've got to find out what that is. Leviticus 16. I'll be in the New International Version. Let's just pick it up. Aaron, the high priest, is moving through his ritual on this most holy and somber day of the religious calendar. All right? So it's the Day of Atonement. When we get down to verse 5, notice now what's happening. Verse 5, from the Israelite community, he, Aaron the high priest, is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. Now, verse 6, Aaron is to offer the bull, which he's already selected, for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. So this is for the priestly community. There will be that sacrifice. Then, verse 7, He is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You're picturing it. Two goats at the entrance. Verse 8. He is to cast lots for those two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. We're going to find out that's a mistranslation. We'll get to that in just a moment. Aaron then, verse 9, shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by the lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as as the Hebrew actually reads there, Azazel. Not scapegoat, Azazel. We'll unpack that in just a moment. So now, without further ado, let's bring these two goats out. For which I am very grateful. They have two lovely professional handlers who are going to bring the goats to their designated place on this platform. Dr. Holly is a veterinarian in our community. We take our dog Sadie to her. And Professor Kathy is in the Department of Agriculture here in the College of Technology. And they are both goat experts, as you will see. All right, ladies, bless you. Two lovely goats. 
Now, folks, we're in Israel. This is the wilderness. This is the Day of Atonement. The two goats are brought to the entrance to the sanctuary, to the tent of meeting. Now the lot must be cast. Fascinating how they cast the lot. Thank you, Horn Archaeological Museum, for this loaned clay pot. This is how they did it. Inside the clay pot were two ballots. We call them ballots. They're two lots, two little pieces of wood. Each has been designated. One for Yahweh, one for the Lord, and the other for Azazel. All right? So the two lots go in. The high priest will not make the selection. Oh, I like that color. Oh, I I like that one. No, there is no human choice involved. It is designated to be divinely done. All right? So Aaron reaches in. He has to... He's going to mix up these uh, lots to make sure that it's fair. And then he will remove a lot. Now, he's going to designate. He's going to say, okay, I'm drawing the lot for this goat. All right. He doesn't draw the lot and say, well, which goat do I want to apply? No, it's for this goat. All right. So he reaches in and he pulls it out. Ah, this is the goat for the Lord. Now, here's what happened. Once the goat is designated as belonging to the Lord, we know now who the other one belongs to. A scarlet cord is taken and is wrapped around... Did you think the goats were going to be docile when they came to the sanctuary? Not at all. The, the scarlet cord is wrapped around the one which will be slaughtered for the Lord. The other scarlet cord is taken to the goat that will remain alive. And if this one had horns, the scarlet cord would be wrapped around the horns. It will remain alive through the entire day. Now... The scarlet-corded one. What's going to happen? And by the way, here is where the, the ritual no longer is acted out in public. Because the high priest would simply reach into his sacred garment and remove the knife and would slit the throat of the goat chosen for the Lord. Now, here's what's happening. Look at uh, verse, verse 15 in Leviticus 16. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people. And take its blood. Remember, goat's blood. Take its blood behind the curtain into the most holy place and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle the goat's blood on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant and in front of it. The only day of the year the high priest would ever dare to enter the most holy place is after the selection has been made. The sacrifice has taken place. And with the blood of the Lord's goat... He steps in to sprinkle and begin the cleansing process of, redo- of withdrawing all the sins that have been accumulating through the year. You got it so far? All right. Now, there's only one goat left alive. What happens to this goat? Let's read. Let's pick this up in <clears throat> pardon me, verse 20. Verse 20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, it's cleansed. The tent of meeting, that would be the holy place, it's cleansed. And the altar of sacrifice, it now has blood sprinkled on it. He shall bring forward the live goat. 
He is, verse 21, to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of of a man appointed for the task. Finally, verse 22, and the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place and the man, the assistant, shall release it in the desert. So here's the final reenactment. When the sins have all been removed from the sanctuary, the high priest will come to the live goat. And this is the only time in the sacred year when a two-hand leaning takes place. Usually it's just one hand, but now it's two hands. And this is the only time in the sacred year when with the hand leaning there is a simultaneous confession. All the other times the confession happened before you brought your animal to the sanctuary. But now... The hands, the two hands will be placed on the live goat and he will press hard on this goat. It will be the transference of the culpability, the blame for all the sins of God's people transferred to the goat that belongs to Azazel. Once that transfer has been made, the assistant takes that goat out into the wilderness where it will subsequently perish alone. Two goat ritual. Day of Atonement. I tell you to give the goats a big hand right now, but I don't want to get them all excited. But I think we ought to give a nice amen to their handlers, Dr. Holly and Professor Kathy. What do you say? How about a nice amen for that job? Yeah, very well done. Thank you, ladies. God bless you both. Yeah, you can clap now because the goats can't hear you. So, what was God doing? with the children of Israel. What's He saying to you and me who live in the Day of Atonement of human history? What would be there for us? Take out your study guide. Let's, let's examine some truths that are associated with the two-goat ritual. Take out your study guide. It's tucked away in your communion bulletin today. If you didn't get a study guide, we've got friendly ushers who are going to do this very fast, gentlemen and ladies, please. Hold your hand up if you didn't get uh, a a study guide in your worship bulletin. Five truths. You want these five. We're going to scribble them down right now. Up on the balcony. Overflow right here. Make sure everybody gets a study guide. And I want to say to those of you who are watching our two-goat teaching, we're delighted you're here. Go to the website. Let me give you our website. You can get the same study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you right now. www.pmchurch.tv Fascinating two-goat ritual. What are these lessons we can take away from it? When you come to the, this is part six, by the way, when you come to the teaching, the two goats, you'll see study guide there, click on the study guide, and you'll be able to jot these same lessons down. You can reflect on them later, but let's write them down together. All right? Five truths from the two goat ritual. Here we go. Truth number one, lesson number one. Would you jot it down, please? The two goats do not represent the same person. Key point. The two goats do not represent the same person. You see, the Bible often will use one animal, one creature, to represent two beings. Watch this. Keep your pen moving. The lion in the Bible. The lion represents both Christ and Satan. You go to Revelation chapter 5. Jesus, the lamb, is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. The roaring lion of eternity. C.S. Lewis in Narnia. Aslan. See, the lion. But, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Beware, your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion prowls about seeking whom he may devour. One creature, two different representations. 
That's true, by the way, of the serpent. Jot this down as well. The serpent first appears in Genesis 3. The serpent clearly represents both Satan and Christ. Genesis 3, we know who the serpent is. Revelation 12, verse 9, that old devil called the serpent. We know who he is. But when Jesus is alone with Nicodemus in that clandestine midnight meeting, he says, as, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm the serpent on Calvary, bearing your sins in my very, in my very soul. All right? So here we have, clearly, the point that just because God uses a creature to represent himself does not mean that creature always represents him. In fact, here, because one goat represents Christ doesn't mean, therefore, the other goat has to represent him as well. In fact, if we take the pattern that we've just seen, we would expect one of the beings to be the opposite of Christ. We would expect one of the beings to be Satan himself. All right, so that's lesson number one. Here we go, lesson number two. The goat that was chosen for the Lord symbolized Christ. But, of course, in this entire series of the temple, as we've been focusing on the Day of Atonement, it has been crystal clear that the cleansing blood on the Day of Atonement was the compelling symbol for the cleansing blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There had been no question about that in anybody's mind. And, in fact, by the way, not only on the Day of Atonement, all 360 days of the year, that's right, their month only had 30 days, 12 months, 360 days in their year, all 360 days, anytime there's blood, it's blood symbolizing the mighty Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is symbolically, symbolically represented by the Lord's goat. In fact, let's put the, we, we, we read this just a moment ago in our uh, scripture. Let's put it on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9, the great day of atonement chapter. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. In fact... The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, let's go back to verse 14. How much more then? How much more than the blood of goats? That's what he's saying. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God. Notice what Christ's blood can do. It can cleanse you and me. It can cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Christ symbolically represented by the, the Lord's goat. So, what about the other goat? Who's this Azazel? Lesson number three. Jot it down, please. The goat that was chosen for Azazel symbolized Satan. Jot it down. Symbolized Satan. By the way, this is the only place in, in the entire Hebrew Bible, which would be the Old Testament, where the name or even the word Azazel appears. There was a time when scholars weren't quite certain over the etymology and the identification of this mysterious Azazel, but there is growing unanimity now. In the very next chapter, in fact, if you just turn over to Leviticus 17, verse 7, God warns the children of Israel, don't offer sacrifices to the goat demons. Your new translations will footnote it, goat demons. What's going on? There's another power Counter to God. In fact, jot this down in your study guide. Leviticus 17.7 suggests there is a counter goat power or person in opposition to God. Who is that being or person? Our friend Roy Gain, who wrote the commentary for Zondervan, the Leviticus Numbers volume of the NIV application commentary. This is from his commentary. Roy's writing here. He teaches here at the Theological Seminary in the Old Testament department. Let's put it up here. These are Roy's words. Once we know, 
Once we know that La Azazel is the proper name Azazel, by the way, the New Revised Standard Version correctly translates it, not scapegoat, but Azazel. Once we know that, that it is referring to a personal being other than the Lord, now watch this, we automatically rule out the traditional mistranslation of Azazel as scapegoat. That is the goat that goes away or escapes. Roy goes on, the dynamics of the live goat ritual imply that Azazel is the Lord's enemy. Now, he's quoting from his own book, Altar Call, with very colorful language coming up here now. The Lord directed the Israelites to transport their sins on a goat to Azazel, who ended up with this noxious load. This would be like sending someone a truck full of chemical waste or dumping a load of reeking, maggot-infested chicken manure all over his front lawn. Not a friendly gesture. Here, Azazel, get a load of this. Somebody's not your friend when they do that to you. That's the point. Now, with that colorful language, Roy is describing this goat, and he puts it this way in another place. He calls this goat the rit- a, a ritual garbage truck or a permanent moral septic tank. Now, listen, the point is clear, and Roy makes this. There is no, now you've you got to get this, there is no substitution taking place with the live goat. It is not substituted for Israel. It will not die for Israel's sins. No, 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 no. Write this down, please. Azazel's goat is not the sin bearer. Not the sin bearer. The Lord's goat is the sin bearer. You've got to get that point. Then what's happening with Azazel's goat? Ah, keep writing. Azazel's goat is rather the final repository of culpability. I'll leave the word up there so you can get the spelling. Culpability. That means blame. This goat is the final repository of culpability or ultimate responsibility for all the cleansed and forgiven sins of Israel. That's what's going on. Hey, listen. Every now and then we read of another bank heist. All right, so two accomplices rip off a bank somewhere in our community. They're taken to court, but in court it's discovered that there has been an evil mastermind from the mafia who directed the entire caper. Now, are the two accomplices guilty? Yes, they are. But will not the law also throw the book at the evil mastermind who perpetrated the crime behind the accomplices? Yes or no? But of course, that's what's going on here. Azazel is the evil mastermind for all evil in the history of the human race. And the book will be thrown at Azazel one day. Trust me. In fact, jot this down. Will you please? The Day of Atonement dramatically teaches that at the end of salvation history, God will place the culpability or blame of all the sins of His saved friends. By the way, it's just His saved friends. Those that don't want God get to stick with their sins. Nobody Nobody takes them. Not even Satan will take them. They get their own. But God will place... Keep reading there in that, in that sentence. God will place the culpability of all the sins of his saved friends back upon the mastermind who caused them. Write it in. Satan himself. And by the way, please note, see Revelation 20 because that's the great chapter of the millennium when, this, when the planet will be emptied of human life And Azazel himself will have a thousand years to ponder the fruitage of his rebellion against the throne of the temple of God himself. A thousand years where the culpability is all coming back. I did.
all myself. The good news is, ladies and gentlemen, the Day of Atonement teaches that this sin, this noxious, septic sin problem will not last forever. Hallelujah. God is going to bring it to an end one day. Never again will there be sin in this universe. Amen. That's the good news. Lesson number four, jot it down. at one because that's what the word atonement is. at one is both a noun and a verb. An act and a process. Key point. Because you see, the cross of Christ is the finished act of God to secure at one for all who choose Him. Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's what atonement means. It means to reconcile, to, to reunite, to restore two, party, two parties into at one relationship again. Atonement creates two parties and restores them at one. Calvary is the act of God in reconciling. How does it go? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Him at Calvary. He's in, he's in Christ reconciling at one again. But it did it all end at Calvary. It couldn't have. Let's say I'm Warren Buffett. Don't you wish? And let's say I liquidate, I, I liquidate all my assets and equities to the tune of $60 billion. All right? So I'm Warren Buffett. I now have $60 billion in cash. You are a banker. And I come to you and I say, question number one, would it be all right if I put my $60 billion into your bank? What are you going to say to me? But of course, Mr. Buffett... And then I ask you a second question. After I've put all my money in your bank, would it be all right with you if occasionally I make withdrawals, withdrawals from that amount? And what are you going to say? But of course, Mr. Buffett, you may take as much as you want. It's yours. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what happened. At Calvary, God liquidated His entire estate. The assets of the treasury of heaven are taken and are poured into this salvation at one And ever since Calvary, and this, this is what Hebrews is trying to tell us, ever since Calvary, Christ has been withdrawing from that storehouse of divine treasure. For every man, woman, and child who senses a moral bankruptcy, if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, Dwight, I'm feeling morally bankrupt right now. I have some good news for you. There is, a, there is a Savior in this universe who can withdraw from His infinite treasure and pay it in full what you owe to guilt. Paid in full. Hallelujah, what do you say? That's the point. Now, God making the deposit, act. God making withdrawals, process. Can you see that it's both a noun and a verb? Atonement is an act and it's also a process. So he makes, the, he, he makes the deposit at Calvary complete act. But Hebrews tells us now Jesus as our heavenly high priest is mediating, withdrawing from the funds to keep you afloat, to keep me morally afloat as well. And then, when you have the return of Christ and the eradication of Satan, then atonement will return to an act. One final act. Securing the universe forever and ever. Amen. 
Ladies and gentlemen, let's review it now and write these down as we review them, please. This is critical for you to understand. Number one, the cross of Christ is a finished act that secures atonement. All right? Finished. It is finished, Jesus cried out. It's finished. Finished act that secures atonement. Number two, the mediation of Christ is a continuing process that provides atonement. Act, process. We're living during the process time right now. And finally, number three, the return of Christ and the eradication of Satan is the final act that completes the atonement. Act, process, act. Noun, verb, noun. And by the way, all three, all three acts and phases of divine atonement, centered as they are on Christ Jesus, everything centers on Jesus, all three are dramatically symbolized in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. All three. That's why that was such a great day. And that's why you and I cannot just blow that old dusty antique away and say it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with you and me because lesson number, lesson number five, write it down, it's cleansing time. Final lesson. Lesson number five. It is cleansing time. That is the shining truth of the Day of Atonement. We are living at this very hour. And by the way, may I tell you this? You were born. You were born into the Day of Atonement. It didn't start after you came along. You were born. The heavenly judgment had already begun. The two-minute warning for the human race had sounded. And now the clock is counting down. There's a cleansing going on in the sanctuary above, cleansing the records in His temple. There's a cleansing going on amongst God's people below, cleansing their hearts. Record of sin, presence of sin, dual cleansing, simultaneously cleansing. Cleansing, cleansing is the key. Cleansing. It's cleansing time. That's why I'm excited about this. I should say that's why I'm stirred up about this. I fear that somehow we might just kind of smile it off and say, I'll get to this when I'm ready for it. The only time you're ready for it is right now. You have nothing more than right now. Cleansing time. Last week I shared a text with you, and we've been brooding over it ever since. Come to our house of prayer. You notice it was front and center for us Wednesday night. Zechariah 12, I want to end with this text, because it doesn't end with verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Let me, let me just put that verse back up on the screen for you. God is making this phenomenal, unbelievable almost promise. And I want you to hear it. Last week, we only concentrated on that first line of verse 10. God speaking, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And we said to ourselves last week, and we, I've been saying a whole lot of this to myself, God, won't you please give this university, give this community, give this congregation a spirit of asking, a spirit of supplication, so that we don't just sit on our hands and say, well, what will be will be. Que sera, sera. No. We're living. Two-minute warning. Give us a spirit of asking, please. But we stop artificially stopped the verse last week there. Notice how the second half of the verse reads. They will look on me, God says. I'm going to give you the spirit of supplication. How? You will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. One of our pastors just a few weeks ago conducted the funeral of a little girl who was killed by her father's car. 
There is no sadder funeral. No sadder funeral. You will mourn for me as if you were the cause of the one who's pierced and dies. You will mourn for me as if your sins alone took my life. It will finally sink in. I died for only you. Not for the guy beside you right now. For only you. Your sins took my life. You'll mourn for him as an only child. Now, if we left it right there, this morning, we'd be sad. But I've got to show you. Chapter 13, verse 1 follows this incredible promise. Drop down to 13, verse 1. On that day. Here comes the Day of Atonement promise. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David. Hallelujah. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. What do you say? On that day when I am lifted up and you will look on the one your sins have pierced, there will be a fountain, a gushing fountain opened up. And that fountain will wash you clean. Day of atonement promise. You will be washed clean of your moral impurity. You will be washed clean of your sinful stain. I will wash you clean. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? Every sin in your life right now that you're a bit troubled by, the good news is there's a fountain that's already been opened up 2,000 years ago. It's the Day of Atonement fountain opened early to cleanse the human race. You can be clean. You don't have to carry that stain with you. You can be clean. Washed clean. Today when we come to the foot of the cross, I'm telling you, don't you go anywhere. You stay right here because you want that cleansing. Today at the foot of the cross, that fountain will be flowing. When you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you will take that fountain in you and it will be, it will mystically cleanse you in the process of celebrating that sacrifice. Why wouldn't you want to be cleansed? Why would you want to skip the cross? You skip the cross, you skip the only hope you have. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. You know who wrote that song? His name is William Cooper. It's pronounced, it's, it's spelled Cowper. Go on Wikipedia. I refreshed my memory of his life. The man was manic depressive. Some of you know what that means. Bipolar. Swing to high, swing to low. This man, manic depressive, found Jesus Christ. But when you find Jesus, doesn't mean it doesn't mean suddenly all the ills go away. You still are you. And in the midst of his finding the gospel, this William Cooper, who became a great English poet, three times he attempted suicide. Three times attempted to take his life. Twice he ended up in an insane asylum as they had in those days. He became a friend of John Newton. Amazing Grace John Newton became a friend of his. And in the moments of, of, of quiet when his mind untortured gave him the presence to write, he composed this great poem. A hundred poems beside it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the Day of Atonement promise. There's been a fountain that's been opened for the, for the earth. And you and I today can step into that fountain and lose all 
our guilty stains. Hallelujah. if that dear friend of yours tortured in his soul could find the hope of the gospel and pour it out in the words we have just sung then the good news must be very good indeed and so we sing at the top of our hearts we sing with all our voices redeeming love shall be my theme and shall be till I die Holy Father, for the fountain opened up in Christ, all of us thank You. We don't know what to say. Thank You is such a pitiful expression of the heartfelt gratitude we have that we're not staying forever. Sin is not staying forever. You're going to cleanse us and the universe and then forever with Him who was our Lamb. Oh God, today, pour out that fountain And in its stream, let us rejoice through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amen.